This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, your need-to-know forecast for the week ahead in politics. I'm Jacob Jarvis and joining me this morning is Alex Andrew. Good morning, Alex. Morning, Jav. How are you? Good weekend? Yes, quiet, thank heaven. I really needed it after those by-elections. I was exhausted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like it's only been about 30 minutes since we last spoke. And here we are. Not that that's, that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing at all. Uh, on that note, first up, the, the by-elections fallout. So Sunak is apparently going to go on a divide and rule mission, which I I mean, I kind of thought maybe they already were on that. But anyway, that's mm. what they're, they're doubling down on, I'm told. What does this look like in the coming days? And does it feel any different to what he's been doing already? I think basically it is an admission of economic failure. Um, If he thought the economy would grow, national debt would fall, inflation would halve, NHS lists would reduce dramatically, etc., we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? Yeah. We are having this conversation because it has now become clear he will fail on some, if not all, of his five promises. Well, it's now become and clear so, to him. It was clear to everyone else, it felt like. That's already. right. That's right. <laughs> it, I mean, it was already, uh, as the Americans would call it, a Hail Mary. Yeah. But it has now become abundantly clear that he needs to step away from those five promises because they're going to be a disaster. He's going to start pivoting away from mentioning it. You just watch what happens in the next few months. Um because otherwise they will head into an election with a list of things behind them that they failed on. Um, So they're casting around for something, anything, to replace that. And the result in Axbridge has given them the hint that maybe there's something there. It's always going to be a defence rather than an attacking strategy, I think. And, And so I think it will look and feel different. I think they will be even more shameless. I think they will lean into, you know, things like stopping the boats and trans rights and issues Mm. like that and university lecturers and all this nonsense of cultural Marxism on the march. And I think it will degrade the quality of the debate even further than at the moment. On on the other side of things, Labour's reaction to all of this has seemed a little bit extreme to me and the way that Sadiq Khan and Ulez have just been 
thrown under the under the bus really it feels mm, like mm. Uh, is is Sadiq Khan actually going to budge on this do you think is he going to actually make changes sometime soon uh, look I genuinely don't know maybe he should pause it maybe it is the wrong policy maybe it is the right policy maybe it is the wrong time for it even though it's the right policy I don't know enough about it and what I can tell you is that if I don't know enough about it then nobody knows enough about it which means that Labour haven't done their comms properly all yeah. right this is what Labour got wrong I think because of Khan's strength and popularity in, in London they haven't bothered to properly make a case for the scheme that's the bottom line it might be the right policy but they have failed to make the case for it. So there is something vital, I think, for Labour to understand here. They need to understand what the Tory policy is, right? The Tory strategy is not leaning into climate change denying nonsense or, or trans rights or anything like that as some issue that can transform the Tories' electoral fate. Those are issues which are important to people, but they don't change votes. If the economy is going badly, trans rights is not going to change the vote of enough people to change the election result, right? So what is the strategy here from the Tories? What those sorts of issues might do is cause Labour to implode, cause Labour to start arguing with itself. That can transform the Tories' electoral fate. Not the issues themselves, but Labour beginning to be on the back foot, beginning to be divided, beginning to argue with itself. That is the thing that can transform yes. Sunak's fate. The charge going into the next election would not be that Starmer has the wrong view on trans rights. Nobody cares enough about stuff like that when the economy is on fire. No, I don't mean to sound flippant. Of course, these issues are vitally important to people. What I mean is they're not vote-changing issues for enough people, all right? The charge going into the next general election would be that Starmer is inconstant, unreliable, untrustworthy, and that his party is not behind him. That is the aim. And it seems to me that Labour have read this completely wrong. What matters in their response is almost not the position, it's unity. Yeah, well, it's surely really easy for the uh, the Tories here to say, look, Keir Starmer doesn't have a plan, or even if he does have a plan, he's not sticking to any sort of plan because he's happy yeah. to adapt so much. That feels like a really easy thing to do, which Labour are sort of rolling over and allowing... allowing and to yet be... Labour are playing into it, precisely. Yeah, completely. Um, which says to me that they are so dominated... And I can understand the reasons why, right? So every question Keir Starmer is asked, I think his primary filter in answering is what will the Daily Mail headline look like when I say X? And maybe that's right. And maybe that was right up until now. But he needs to realize that the, the conservative strategy has changed and he needs to change with it. Yeah, it feels to me like Starmer has this fear of criticism on all fronts in that he doesn't want the, the Labour Party to look at all divided. So that's why there's this yeah. kind of internal wrangling in the Labour Party and he's been so hard there. But then also there was this line that came out where you know he said that Labour policies shouldn't be on Tory campaign literature. Well, then what would be on Tory campaign literature? 
if not to criticise your opponent, yeah. what would we do okay, on look, political I, campaign literature? All right. So, uh, you know, I've been laying into Labour, so let me now defend them. I think Labour has been, to an extent, bullied into fleshing out policies with too much detail too far ahead of the election, right? Yeah. We are potentially 18 months away from an election. There shouldn't be detailed policies on the desk. They are constantly made to show too much of their hand, giving their opponents the chance to either discredit policy A or steal policy B, which is what they've been doing, right? They've yeah. been either saying this is terrible and it will cost the country billions, or they've been nicking it, which then leaves Labour with having to, to invent more policies. It is still more than a year before the election, possibly. They need to take a step back and go back to talking about values. That's the issue here. This is where Labour is strong. I said it before and I'll say it again. The question in people's mind needs to be not policy detail, but this. If Sunak had a tenor to spend on the country and Starmer had a tenor to spend on the country, how would they spend it? This is where Labour is strong, right? In saying their priorities and our priorities are different. People get that and they believe it because they know it's credible, because they've seen it in action. And then everything the Tories do, whatever tax break they give, whatever, you know, uh, uh, legacy issue they, they fail to deal with fits into that. Labour can say, look, because those are their priorities um, and they're not our priorities. With this said, uh, the Tories trying to drum up this sort of division. I mean, we're going into a, a recess here. Are there going to be plenty of MPs who've got a little bit too much time on their hands because they don't give their constituents enough enough TLC who are going to be driving campaigns in WhatsApp chats and making all this kind of mudslinging and politicking even more present in the next few weeks? Yeah, maybe. I mean, we haven't had a proper silly season for ages, actually, you know, where there's no news going on. Um, personally, I hope for one because I feel exhausted. And it's possible that we will get one, primarily because all the big political journalists tend to go on holiday. So they're not around to cover Westminster and there's no one around Westminster. However, I suspect this is the time when Johnson will make mischief. I know you love mentioning Boris Johnson, but, <laughs> I mean, he must be feeling hurt right now, yeah, okay? Yeah, completely. Because yeah. the Axbridge seat was not lost, right? What result would yeah. Johnson have wanted in Axbridge? He would have wanted for the Tories to be annihilated. He would have wanted to say, après moi le déluge. Yeah. So he will be looking to strike, and he might, and suspect will, this is my prediction, wade in and defend green policies. Because he aligned himself quite closely with that kind of stuff, with COP26, etc. And because he feels that from the margin, when he doesn't have to commit actual money to it, these policies are right and eminently defensible. So I think... Um, that might suddenly cause the divisions to be in the Tories rather than Labour. So as Sunak moves to the right, as it were, then that leaves space for Johnson to reappear as a sort of popular centrist unity candidate 
And he's too smart not to take that opportunity. The right constantly have a go at the blob, but surely that is just Boris Johnson just blobbing his way into any political Absolutely. space and just taking Absolutely. it all up, isn't it? Any very... crack, any crevice, yeah. <laughs> he will he will slid through it like the entity in the thing. Yeah, he's like political polyfiller, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Right, let's take a look at some news in Europe. While the talk is surrounding dialing down green policies here, I mean, we can really viscerally see the impact of climate change in Greece at the moment. Does it look like things are just going to get worse in this coming week? They might or they might not. Temperatures are a little bit cooler this week. They're predicted to be mid-30s rather than 40s. So that will help. But I think what people who are not used to summer fires tend to not understand is that the most important factor is wind speed and direction and the month of july and august tend to be windy in greece especially near the coast and on the islands so that's what will make the big big difference um i have to say that watching the news for the last three days has been really quite painful for me properly enraging Because it's just been an endless series of phone calls from people complaining that, you know, their holiday was ruined and they had to leave their suitcase behind and they were scared. And it's like, he should be scared. It's a fucking scary fire. Um, You know, and you were warned plenty of times not to go on these holidays because temperatures were insane. So you choose to get on a plane, you choose to believe everything will be all right, they're probably just overplaying it, and then you go into a country, and I have to say, considering the hellscape that is going on now in, in Rhodes and now in Corfu as well, as far as I know, there have been no fatalities and not even any serious injuries. So I think the local people and the the authorities and the volunteers are doing a very, very good job. And this endless parade of telephone calls saying, oh, we were very scared and no one was telling us much. Well, you know, it's an emergency. They're trying to save you from a fire. And I've heard nothing about the lives of the local people that are impacted, the thousands of houses and businesses that have perished you know, which matter. It's like the only person that matters in this whole equation is the British holidaymaker. And I'm sorry, but that is a a cruel and moronic way of presenting the news. Yes, it's it's just, it's a really lazy framing, isn't it? It really is. And it's really, it's smart and it's annoying. Looking at that, the damage for Greece, we've seen 19,000 people evacuated in roads. Just how much damage is this? Look, in terms of tourism, honestly, none. 
Greece is used to these fires. They happen every year. They get worse every year. No other place offers what Greece has at the price that Greece can, right? So if the price of holidays has to nudge down by 2% next year in order to boost demand to where it should be, it will go back up, you know, 5% the year after. When there's something going on in Turkey or Italy or Spain, which pushes demand towards Greece, that's what happens. And it's been happening forever. In terms of economic damage, there is a lot, a lot of businesses, like I was saying, have been destroyed, will have to rebuild it. I think in terms of the environment, potentially, is the worst possible damage, because that depends on the government. And the government at the moment is very focused on the economy bouncing back, I mean, forest fires ordinarily are part of the natural cycle, right? Vegetation tends to grow back very well. They tend to renew areas where they happen. The problem is that in Greece, especially during times like this, when everything is growth, 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 as soon as the trees are burnt down, you know, someone bribes a local official and builds a bunch of bungalows where wilderness used to be. And that is what really concerns me at the moment. And I think the international community will do well to shift its focus on what happens to the wilderness in Greece after those fires. Because I think, you know, there's almost like a, a tacit collusion going on that because it's where we like to go on holiday, we don't particularly mind if a few more hotels are built and the prices stay low. So it's almost like a silent pact to say nothing about, you know, wild areas yeah. not being left as wild. And, and I think the environmental um, lobby needs to keep an eye on Greece, needs to keep an eye on what happens in those areas after the fire, rather than just be focused on what happens during the fire. Turning to another nation in the mainland, Spain held elections at the weekend. What does the situation look like there? I mean, it was there was this big prediction of the far right doing well. Has it played out as it appears, or was that kind of the the way the British media likes to treat any other country like a, every a single fucking election? Right? Yeah. This happens with every single election in Europe now. Now, it just seems to me the British press finds something irresistible to the headline, why is the far right on the march across Europe? Without yeah. ever really questioning, is it? And so this is not the result everyone had touted beforehand. It's a shift to the center, if anything, right? Because actually a lot of votes returned to the Conservative Party, the equivalent of the Conservative Party, the PP, right? Yeah. And the far-right party, Vox, actually lost seats. It went from 15% share to 12% share, and from 52 seats to 33. Will the press as a whole devote the column inches that it has over the last week to the far-right is on the march across Europe, to pointing out that actually the far-right is in retreat in Spain? So anyway, what happened in Spain? So Alberto Núñez Feijóo, I think it's pronounced, of the, of the sort of right-wing Conservative Party PP, will try to form a coalition. But the far-right party Vox, 
actually lost seats. And it means that even together, they are several seats short of the 167 they need for a majority. Now, had they been enough on their own to form some sort of stable majority, then the PP party may have gone for it, despite the obvious reputational risks, especially in a country like Spain that has such recent, relatively recent experience of Franco. Um, There is a reputational risk in being seen as doing business with uh, effectively the fascists, right? Yeah. If they're not enough to form a coalition majority, then the reputational risk might be too much. And Alberto Núñez Feijó might not go even for an attempt at that. It looks weirdly more difficult for the Tories in Spain at the moment than it looks for the current Prime Minister Sánchez, um, whose socialists actually gained a few seats and, and, and 4% share. The problem for them is that their likely coalition partners, Sumar, who are also on the left, are no longer enough because they lost seats. There is a path for them to government via some sort of deal with regional nationalist parties. Maybe they promise referenda to the Catalans and the Basques and do a deal that way. But honestly, the most likely outcome at the moment, I think, is another election in the autumn. I think you've just sort of unfortunately summed up slightly why it is that this won't get the the prominence it deserves in some ways. It's because, uh, as you've just explained, there's there's a lot of nuance to it and there's complexity. And and if something's in a status quo, and I mean... I, I would slightly defend the the papers here in that I think that there probably will be plenty of pages dedicated to this in the the foreign pages in newspapers, but it will be obviously more subdued and further back, and it won't be you can't splash status quo, but that is quite it's sort of you know how do you there's something in there that we've we've diminished okay. people's no. de- desire for nuance, haven't we? I we've will grant that. you, I will grant you that, Joe. All right, yeah, but. But there were dozens of think pieces before in, on, mm. in the opinion pages about why yeah. the far right is on the march across Europe. And there's no reason there shouldn't be loads of think pieces in no. the opinion pages in the coming week about why did we get it wrong? Because think pieces in the British press are unfortunately very unthoughtful for the most part, aren't they? There's, mm. Not, mm. there's not really too much, too much thinking going on there. Yeah, no, I I think it goes back to what Fintan O'Toole uh, wrote about the British, actually, a few years ago around Brexit. He was saying that I think the experience of the Second World War is very different for the British than it was for almost anywhere else in, in Europe, while for Europe it was a calamity. For the British, it was actually a glorious moment. So maybe that's the, the answer, that there is something sort of deeply within the British DNA that actually gets a buzz from the the possibility of once again being the defenders against fascism. And that's why this this ghost is so easily manufactured and and glorified. Turning to Ukraine, uh, Zelensky promised retaliation after an attack on Odessa. Uh, I see that Russia has accused Ukraine of a, a drone attack on Moscow now. What what might we see in the coming days in in terms of this retaliation that Zelensky has mentioned? 
I mean, obviously, I'm not an expert on this. If anyone needs an expert on this, then Arthur Snell is a person to listen to. Um, he's been covering this very well. I think this is where Ukraine begins to press more seriously for aerial support. Okay. The next step, we need planes or we need the West to intervene. And I think this is the point at which either the West goes all in or begins to look at diplomatic compromise. The push this summer has obviously not been enough to break the deadlock. There's, you know, there's still a deadlock. And considering what this conflict is costing the rest of the world in terms of energy prices, in terms of food inflation, in terms of purely the money it costs to be funding this war effort with weapons and ammunition, I think we're now coming to the time where NATO needs to either stick or twist. Alex, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoyed Start Your Week, remember you can back the bunker on Patreon. From £3 per month, you'll get episodes early and ad-free, as well as a shout-out on this show. Here's Alex with today's. A big Monday morning cuddle to Ben Cliff, Alison Leonard and Nigel Beanland. Thank you for joining us. Come back tomorrow for another episode of The Bunker. Start Your Week with The Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andrei and Jacob Jarvis. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.